Beloved, at the, uh, towards the end of the Cold War, I was a defense contractor, and I was a, a specialist working on something called meteor burst communications. It was a very esoteric form of communications. And now there is a point to this, so bear with me. <laughs> Every day, uh, billions of small meteors enter the Earth's atmosphere, and they burn up, and they leave an ionized trail in their wake. And you can bounce radio wave signals in the lower VHF region off of them with the correct geometry. And this was being used for a land-based intercontinental ballistic missile system. Uh, part of the reason, there are a couple reasons among others as to why this was attractive. And what you would have is you'd have a ground-based mobile launch command center, or maybe a couple of them, communicating into a field of hard mobile-based launchers that would be scattered across Montana, uh, the Dakotas, and Wyoming. And part of the reason this was of interest is because on one side, the Soviets can't shoot down the meteors. They're always there. And then also in a nuclear disturbed environment, the, in the frequency range of the lower BHF region, that will return earlier than other ones. Uh, here, now we get to the point that ties into the text. In any communication system, you need to be concerned with the transmitter and the receiver. Both are necessary. For an effective communication system, you need a sound transmitter and a sound receiver. On a side note, in technological communication systems, most of the design and expense goes into the receiver, but that's not the main point here. The point is this, in the same way, when we think of an effective church, when we think of a healthy church, when we think of a mature church, like this little fledgling church in Thessalonica, to have a healthy, effective, sound church, you need healthy, effective, sound shepherds, and you need healthy, effective, sound sheep. Beloved, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In the first 12 verses, God laid out for us what true ministers look like, what true ministry looks like. And we can think of even of what the lamentation that Lord Jesus had when he was looking at the people. And he said he mourned for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And what he meant by that was they were sheep without men who teach, who have a fidelity to the truth that they teach and have a fidelity of the life that they live. The people didn't have men who proclaimed the message of God to them and certainly didn't have shepherds that impart their lives to them. Those are the marks of a model shepherd. Those are the marks of a healthy shepherd that we looked at last week in verses 1 through 12. Now as we turn the page to our passage this morning, verses 13 through 16, we see the marks of sanctified sheep, of healthy sheep. Beloved, listen as I read the word of God. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 13. And for this reason... We also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews." who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. 
Beloved, this is the word of God that's been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now again, last week we had the marks of a true minister, the marks of a true ministry. Here, God answers the question in verses 13 through 16, what do sanctified sheep look like? When we think of this newborn church in Thessalonica that was a model church for all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, they welcomed the word preached, they welcomed the lives imparted, and they welcomed the suffering endured. You see, sanctified sheep are receptive to the word of God, and they are receptive to the cost of discipleship. And the simple twofold outline that we have here this morning is that the two marks of sanctified sheep are they assimilate the word and they embrace the suffering. They embrace the suffering. Beloved, we know when we look at Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that God places a great emphasis on the high calling standards, demands, and requirements for the men that would lead his people. He now tells us the standards, requirements, and demands for the sheep. He expands from the shepherd to the sheep. So the first mark of sanctified sheep in verse 13 is they assimilate the word. Uh, Verses 1 through 12 were really, verses 1 through 12 here in chapter 2, were an expansion of what Paul had opened up the letter with back in verse 5 of chapter 1, where there he said, you know what manner of men we prove to be among you. And then verses 1 through 12 is Paul expanding on that. So what we have here in verses 13 through 16, it's an expansion of what he opened up with in verse 6 of chapter 1, where he says, you became imitators of us. And then even as he goes on from that, the Thessalonian believers became imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And then they became, by God's grace and mercy in the economy of God, the imitated because of the model example that they provided to all the churches. Uh, John Calvin said that this verse, verse 13, describes the harmony between Paul's preaching and the people's faith. And what we see here in verse 13 is that the word of God penetrated their ears, it penetrated their hearts, and it penetrated their hands. They heard it, they agreed with it, and they obeyed it. First, they heard it. The word of God, the gospel of God, the message of God penetrated their ears. And it's interesting, Paul had called, if you were here last week, you may remember, or last two weeks, you may remember that four times in the first 12 verses, Paul called the Thessalonians themselves as witnesses. Here in verse 13, he calls them again to the stand, but not as witnesses, he calls them as evidence. And I trust I'm warming the heart of my brother uh, lawyer and brother or brother and sister or lawyers that are here because that's a courtroom system that we have here. Verse 13, we read, and for this reason, we also constantly thank God. It picks up the very opening of the letter back in verse 2 of chapter 1 with Paul's habitual thanksgiving. We give thanks to God always for all of you the least, the last, the left out, and the lazy, making mention of you in our prayers. So, beloved, the point here is Paul's thankful heart for them, for the beloved sheep, is deep and abiding. This is his faithful and regular pattern. And in a bit, I'll expand more on the power of a thankful heart, because that is a power that the world cannot understand. So, we continue on in the verse that we constantly thank God that 
when you received from us the word of God's message, when you welcomed from us literally the word of hearing. This is describing the obedient hearing of these Thessalonian believers, the obedient hearing of these sanctified sheep. And it's connected to what he had said back in verse 9. Just a few verses earlier, he said back in verse 9, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul and company proclaimed the gospel, and the Thessalonians accepted, received, welcomed the gospel. And the gospel of God in verse 9, and the word of God's message here in verse 13 is not the Bible. It's not the written word of God that you have on your laps. To be sure, what you have on your laps is the sword of the Spirit, but this is the oral preaching of God's message that he is talking about here, under the power of of the Holy Spirit, which we also saw back in chapter 1. So Paul preached it, they heard it, and they accepted it. Or excuse me, they agreed with it. They heard it and they agreed with it. So the word penetrated their hearts and after first having penetrated their ears. They accepted the preached word of God with a hearty welcome is how we can understand and bring these together. He continues and says, you accepted it. You received it. You accepted it. So what Paul is saying is that these newborn Thessalonians humbly received the authoritative preaching of the word as sufficient for life and faith. They said amen to God's amen. And here's the kicker. This is the, the center of what is taking place as to why they had this hearty welcome of the message of God. Look at the middle of verse 13. Not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God. What Paul is saying here, he's highlighting the fact that this word preached is not of human origin. It's not something that somebody sucked out of their thumb. It's not like the religious charlatans and snake oil salesmen that were scurrying around and purveying their wares of religiosity back in the Greco-Roman at that time, or as we might turn on the TV and see right now. No, this is the word of God, not the word of man. And God has chosen, we know from 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, the foolishness of preaching. So the word that the Thessalonians received and accepted, the one they heard and what they agreed with, came from the head of, from the brain of the Apostle Paul. It came through his mouth, but that is not its ultimate origin. The message came, beloved, from the heart and mind of Almighty God. And that's why Paul will tell the Romans, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And to have kind of a historical illustration, back in Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, when God is communicating to the nation of Israel through the mouth of Moses, what God superintended Moses to write, the words that God inspired to the nation of Israel, Numbers 12, 8, says this. This is God speaking to Israel of Moses. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. So, it's not like when we hear mouth-to-mouth in our culture, we probably immediately go to mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. That's not what he's talking about here. What God is saying through the mouth of Moses is these words come from the mouth of God. They come from the mouth of Moses. There's an identity there. And that is why when God speaks, let the earth be silent. You see, 
what these people hear are words from a man, but they see them as divine words. So you can think of, here's, here's perhaps an illustration that may help. Think of Peter, who Peter saw Jesus Christ, the man. Je- he saw Jesus who was 100% human. But by God's enabling power in Peter, Peter realized that when he was looking at this human, he was looking at a divine man. He was not just looking at a human man, he was looking at a divine man in the same way God enabled these Thessalonians to hear the human words and to recognize that they are divine words and that's what he does with you and me from the point of conversion when God removes the scales of darkness and the word is preached to us when it's shared with us when it's taught us when we sing it in the beautiful lyrics we realize that these are divine words from God himself that is God for his glory. And so these Thessalonians accept Paul's words as God's words. It's the same kind of dynamic as when Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, which was a, unlike the mature church in Thessalonica, was a problematic church. But even though Paul told the church in Galatia in chapter 4, verse 14, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. And see, the rub is this. If it was a word from man to man, you have the right to reject it or accept it. But if it is a word from God to man, there is only one choice. You, I, must accept it. And there's a flip side to this dynamic. We must recognize the divine authority of the word preached, of the word of God when it's brought forth at any level in any venue. But there's a flip side we must guard against. There was a 18th century pastor and preacher, Ebenezer Erskine. And he went to a different church in some kind of conference, and there was a woman at the conference that heard Ebenezer Erskine preach, and she was just touched and moved and shook in her soul. Uh, She had never heard any message like that. It was so powerful. And so as a result of that, she said, I want to go to his church. I want to hear him preach again. The next Lord's Day, next Sunday, she went to Pastor Erskine's church. But guess what? It was a whole different dynamic. It didn't have the zap. It didn't have the power. Whatever it was that she experienced, she didn't experience this the second time. And so she went up to Ebenezer and explained to him the dilemma and the situation and asked if he could help her. And this is what Ebenezer said to her. He said, ma'am, the reason is this. Last Sunday, you went to hear Jesus Christ. This Sunday, you came to hear Ebenezer Erskine. You see, she was so enamored with the instrument. She came to hear the instrument, not the word. So there is a flip side to both. We must uh, capture that well. And there's another beautiful illustration, beloved, from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. It's interesting, I had did the public reading of Scripture earlier from Isaiah chapter 6 with Isaiah's vision of God and his holiness. And it's interesting, he wraps up in a similar vein at the end of his writing. Isaiah 66, look at verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Beloved, this is the trembling of reverence and holy fear. Beloved, 
Every time you and I gather under God's word on the Lord's day, we come, you come to a word-mediated encounter between your soul and the almighty living God of the universe. That's the dynamic that Paul is bringing out here in his description of this first mark of the sanctified sheep. So they heard the word, they agreed with the word, and they obeyed the word. The word penetrated their ears, it penetrated their hearts, and it penetrated their hands. This welcoming reception of the message of God came into their hearts, it came into their minds, and it came into their very lives. Look at the end of verse 13. Which also performs its work in you who believe. Performs its work. Energeo. Energy. It's an effective, energetic, dynamic word with power. This is the Fruitful, this is their fruitful assimilation of the word of God into every part of their being, their ears, eyes, hands, mouth, everything, all was in subjection to this word. Beloved, your Bible is not a dead letter. It is a living word. Peter captured this in 1 Peter 1, 23. Peter said, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable that is through the living and abiding word of God I love the story that R.C. Sproul used to tell before he went home to glory he used to tell the story that people would come up to him after perhaps a sermon or some kind of teaching and they would come up and try to encourage him and say you you just made the word of God come alive to me today and R.C. Sproul would, of course, graciously thank them for the encouragement, and then he would pastorally, graciously try to redirect them. And he says, understand, beloved brother or sister, I can't make something come alive that is already alive. A better way for you to thank the Lord for the work he's doing is his word made me come alive again, anew, afresh, even today. What, beloved, Dear friend, what can open a hard heart? What can make deaf ears hear? What gives sight to the blind? The word of God creates, it regenerates, and it sustains. And there's nothing so hard, there's nothing so deeply hidden, the word won't uncover and bring to life. There's no heart so hard that the word of God can't soften it. And there's no sin so deeply hidden that the word of God can't bring to light. Beloved, Scripture untangles the human heart. It unearths what lies below. It gives life to the dead. It brings to the light what was whispered in the dark. And we understand it is very, it's a very good thing to have a high view of Scripture. But having a high view of Scripture does us no good if we don't open up and unearth and study what's contained in the sacred pages therein. Bring out the book, as the nation of Israel said to Nehemiah. And let me now pick up a central thought that I mentioned before of a thankful heart. Beloved, one of the powers of a thankful heart is it produces a content heart. It produces a calm heart. It produces a clean conscience. I've told fellow pastors, brothers, elders of mine before that in times when I'm carrying a particular great burden that by God's grace and mercy, though I have a content heart, I have a calm heart. You see, because a thankful heart is a heart that doesn't grumble. It doesn't complain or gossip. Because thankfulness and a critical grumbling spirit cannot coexist. And what happens is, 
in our frailty, if we have internal grumbling, grumbling, a murmuring, a muttering, the internal grumbling can become external grumbling. Uh, it can spawn and give birth to gossip. Solomon wrote Proverbs 26, verse 22, the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. So whereas grumbling is muttering and murmuring, whispering is those hushed voices, those secret whispers. And what are the signs of gossip? Hushed whispers. Having a conversation when people come up, the conversations stop. And whereas internal grumbling produces external gossip, what does gossip produce? What is the deformed offspring of gossip? Strife, lies, slander. And we can ask the question, are these serious issues? Are these serious sins? Beloved, grumbling, gossip, and strife in God's church are an abomination to the Lord. I'll just give a couple examples back. In Proverbs chapter 6, there are six things God hates, seven that are an abomination to him. That's verse 16, verse 17. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lie. And then number seven, which caps it out as the abomination, one who spreads strife among brothers. Or in Romans chapter 1, if you're familiar with Romans chapter 1 in verses 24 and forward, God describes a heart that's in rebellion against the Lord. And he goes through three successive layers of God giving human beings over to their depravity. He begins in verses 24 and 25 with the most first fundamental, which is rejection of him as creator. Romans 1, <clears throat> 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Then he moves to level two in verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, and their woman exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Of course, describing the sad, perverted, grotesque sin of homosexuality. But the point here is we move from there to an even worse state. In verse 28 and forward, God gives them over in the next level to basically being spiritual sociopaths. And see what he says here. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, and it goes on from there. So the question, and it's a reasonable question, is why would God, we, we understand the severity of the sin of homosexuality, why would God say gossip is in a category worse than homosexuality? Now, we know and we are witnessing the sad spectacle of the social contagion of the LGBTQ plus movement in the world, in the culture. But in a church filled with believers, that doesn't have the same kind of social contagion effect. But gossip will give birth, if it's unchecked, will give birth to lies, strife, and deceit. It will spread like 
wildfire if left unchecked. And this is where the blind lead the blind, both fall into the ditch. That's why <clears throat> the good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, quote, there's nothing that leads to such havoc in the Christian life. There's nothing that so ruins life as a spirit of murmuring and disputing. It ruined the whole story of the ancient people. It has ruined the Christian life and experience of many a Christian in this world. It leads to a poor testimony and brings disgrace and disrepute upon the Christian name, end quote. And beloved, uh, drawing this back into the kind of encouragement and exhortation we would get with this application from this example of Thessalonica. If we want to understand what healthy, biblical, God-honoring, body-building communication looks like, it's very simple. Don't say things in secret you wouldn't shout from the rooftop. And we can never lead people heavenward unless we're climbing ourselves. And we don't need to be very high, but we must be climbing. That is part of the body work in the body of Christ. Spurgeon said, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven. A great faith will bring heaven to your soul. That's the goal for all of us. Beloved, by God's grace and mercy, may we welcome the word into our ears, into our hearts, <clears throat> into our lives, even when it bites and stings. May we welcome the word's reverence and may we bow to its authority. That's the first mark of sanctified sheep is they assimilate the word. The second mark of sanctified sheep is they embrace suffering. A willingness to suffer for Christ is proof of salvation. We see this through scripture. This is the brotherhood of suffering, the sisterhood of suffering. They embrace the cost of following Christ. And what we have in verses 14 through 16 are two groups. We have the oppressed minority and the oppressing majority. It's been said many times by many men, the blood of martyrs is a seed of the church. And the story is ever the same. It's repeated in every age and every clime. And that is what Paul brings out here. And understand this, when I get into these groups, at the time of this writing, the Christians were not the oppressing majority. They were a very tiny oppressed minority. Now, I say that we understand, if we think rightly, that Christians are always in the minority. But we may live, hypothetically, in a country where a majority of people may say they are Christians. So that was not the time here. Professed or truly possessed faith was in very, very rare commodities. So that is the background to look at what he says in verse 14. He says, For you, brethren became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, and then a second for, for you also endured the same sufferings. That double-fold for, F-O-R, what he's saying is because of your ready acceptance, from your, because of your hearty welcoming of the message of the word of God, that is why you are now suffering and why you must embrace the suffering and when I say embrace the suffering we don't seek out suffering for suffering's sake we don't inflict pain on our body unless it's going to make us better positioned to do what we need to do that's a side topic not from a spiritual standpoint from a physical standpoint anyway let's <laughs> get back on task here beloved he picks up Again, the expansion of what he laid the foundation for back in verse 6 of chapter 1. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having welcomed the word in much tribulation 
what he said back in chapter 1, 6, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now what he says is you have become imitators. In chapter 1, verse 6, there was an active part of the disciples becoming imitators of the disciples of the uh, disciples becoming active imitators of the disciplers. Here, this is passive. It's not that they tried to imitate and sought out to imitate their Jewish brethren in the churches in Judea, but they became that because that is part and parcel of walking with Christ. And Judea, this is the land of Judah, from Gaza up to Caesarea along the coast, bracketed on the west by the Mediterranean Sea and on the east by the Dead Sea. And what he's saying here is you Gentile believers who turned from idols in Thessalonica, you're experiencing the same kind of suffering that your Jewish brethren did. And we know, as Paul told the church in Rome, he's not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel came first to the Jews, so also suffering came first to the Jewish believers. That is the dynamic here, and in particular, what he's saying is the suffering you are experiencing is the very same suffering your Jewish brethren experienced. You are experiencing the suffering at the hands of your own countrymen. They suffered the persecution at the hands of their countrymen, who continues on, both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And just a quick word here, in the original language, Paul uses an incredibly unusual, unique word order. Literally, what we read as who both killed the Lord Jesus literally says, who both the Lord killed Jesus. Paul put the verb in between the Lord and Jesus. Very, very unique. And what he's doing there, he's highlighting the fact that the great offense, they didn't merely kill the man Jesus. They killed the Lord of glory, is what Paul is emphasizing with that. And the prophets. They killed the Messiah, and they killed those men who came to announce his coming. And this will continue or has continued we can think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was giving his defense when he was given his apologia not for himself when he was given an apologia defense of the cause of Christ the gospel this is what he told the people his countrymen that were picking up the stones to kill him verse 52 Acts 7 which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And it will happen again with James, the apostle James in Acts chapter 12. Peter, history tells us, was crucified upside down. Paul will offer up his life after he writes 2 Timothy. And by the way, even as Paul is writing this, so Paul wrote 2 Timothy's last letter, 1 Thessalonians, either 1 Thessalonians or Galatians is his first letter that he wrote to a church, we're not sure which. Uh, but it's not lost on Paul when he tells the Thessalonian believers that they will suffer the very same persecution that he himself was heaping and piling upon the believers when he was Saul of Tarsus. Before Jesus Christ saved him and made him a new creature, he was actually a young man holding the coats so that the wicked rabble could pick up the stones to kill Stephen. That ironic dimension is not lost on Paul, nor the transforming power 
of what God has done in his life. That's why he says to Timothy, I am the foremost among sinners because he knows his heart better than anyone. So they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and they drove us out. And actually, before I get there, pause there for a second. Who killed Jesus? The Jews killed Jesus. The Romans killed Jesus. The Judas killed Jesus with the help of Satan at the handiwork of Satan. The Roman soldiers killed him. The Roman politicians killed them. God tells us in Scripture, other places in the New Testament, the entire world killed Jesus. I know when I look at myself before God graciously, sovereignly rescued me for his glory and my eternal joy, that my voice effectively joined the mocking voices of the scoffers at his uh, crucifixion. So, all are guilty. So Paul's not picking on the Jews. They are the immediate referent that he's speaking of here. But remember, the background context is the Gentile enemies of the gospel. So it is all the above. And they drove us out. Ek dioko. They persecuted severely. They literally persecuted us out. Beloved, this is the tale as old as time. Opposition to God and his people. This is the age-old war waged by the devil against God and God's people. And even when Paul will write his final letter in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Will be persecuted, will be dioko, same word. But in fact, it's even more an intense version of the word here in 1 Thessalonians. And what will Paul cite? So when Paul, some years later, writes his second letter to the church in Corinth, when Paul is forced to defend his apostleship because of the presence of the enemies of the gospel, which Paul detested doing, but he would do it for the sake of the gospel, which, by the way, in a healthy environment, the man who is being assaulted doesn't defend himself. Those men around him are the ones who will defend him. But when Paul was forced to defend himself in 2 Corinthians, what did he point out as a sign of a true apostle? His suffering. His suffering. What he's doing here, beloved, in the very same way. Before he wrote 2 Corinthians, he wrote this letter, and he says this sign, the, authentic, the authenticating mark of true discipleship, of a true follower of Christ, is suffering. Your suffering and self-giving for the gospel are echoes of this unchanging opposition to the gospel. And this is so contrary to the natural human state. Everybody, every pagan, wants to live their best life now. And as Pastor John MacArthur said, if you are living your best life now, that means you're going to hell. Beloved, for the believer, for the Jew, for the Gentile, for the Jewish believer, the Gentile believer, tribulation brings testing and training. It trains the man and it tests his mettle. That's why J.C. Ryle said, there are no lessons so useful as those learned in the school of affliction. And the result is, through our suffering, whether it's a suffering or persecution or any other suffering you may think of, in Christ, it will make you pure. It will make you stronger and it will make you wiser. That's the dynamic. And what did we see when we were back in Hebrews chapter 11 in the gallery of faith of the godly men and women of old who believed the promises of God and endured to the end through trial, tribulation, and suffer? They looked to the future, and so they endured to the end. That's this tenacious clinging to the word of God no matter 
the cost. And that is precisely what Paul brings out here. Beloved, saving faith embraces the message and clings to it even to the point of death. And if we want the blessing, we must be willing to carry the burden and fight the battle. In the child of God, suffering blows away the chaff of error and sin and tying together the suffering here in 1 Thessalonians 2 back with the tribulation in chapter 1, verse 6. This suffering, the Holy Spirit awakens joy in the heart, in the midst of suffering. And this joy the Holy Spirit awakens in your heart is a joy that angels can't give and devils can't take. Beloved, may, may we gain what we can't lose by giving up what we can't keep. And friend, I would say this, if you're here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ alone by faith alone, if you haven't found something in your life worth dying for, you haven't found anything in your life worth living for. And that takes us to the second group, the oppressing majority. Now this last part, the latter part of verse 15 and verse 16, is describing unbelievers culminating in the wrath of God which has overtaken them is looming over them but there is an application for believers at the end of verse 15 look at the text they're not pleasing to God but they're hostile to all men in contrast to verse 4 where Paul said we speak as pleasing God who examines our heart these enemies of the gospel are not pleasing to God they are hostile uh, like an opposing wind that drives against the progress. This same word hostile here, uh, Paul used when he was writing to Titus, in Titus 2.8, where he encouraged Titus to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent, the hostile one, the opposing one, may be put to shame. And it's interesting, Paul here, in verses 15 and 16 of 1 Thessalonians 2, is speaking like an Old Testament prophet. I can think of the example of an Old Testament prophet who said in Luke 23, if they do these things while the, while the tree is green, what will become of them when it is dry? And the Old Testament prophet I'm speaking of there is Jesus Christ. That was a prophecy, that was a word, and he was the, they were still under the Old Covenant at that point in time. The point is that Jesus is bringing out, that Paul is bringing out here, whether it's the Jewish hostile one or the Gentile hostile one, instead of receiving the word of God's message, they thrust it away because it exposes them and they will hear no more. The word of God, friend, tells us that our hearts are veritable cesspools of iniquity. It tells us not that we are weak and wounded and we need help. It tells us we are dead in our trespasses and sin and we need new life. An unsaved man will have none of this. That's why, look at verse 16. Not only were they rejecting the word on their own, but they were hindering the progress of it, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. They're trying to silence God's messengers, and in effect, they're attempting to gag God. How do you think that works for them? God will not be gagged. You may kill the messenger, you can never kill the message. Like John Huss said in the Reformation period before he gave his life up for the cause of Christ and for the gospel. He said, you may silence this goose, but the swan, the swan song of the message of the gospel will live on. And then 
Also in verse 16, continuing, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. They're heaping up their sins to the limit, to the breaking point of God's patience and long-suffering. And beloved, dear friend, nothing could do this more directly or fully than persecuting and hindering the preachers of the gospel. And it's interesting, this word fill up, this is the same Greek word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 15, verse 6. In Genesis 15, that is where God cuts his covenant with Abraham. He gives many promises to Abraham, including that his people will go into captivity, into exile for 400 years. And in verse 16 of Genesis 15, this is what he tells Abraham that God will do for his people after that time. He says, in the fourth generation, they will return here. Watch this. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It's not filled up. Same word is here. Beloved, that is the providence of God. God will fulfill his promise to bless Israel and also his promise to judge the Amorites who deserve to lose the land. Israel will receive the land, but not one hour before holy justice requires it. And take that as comfort, beloved. When you and I, when we endure suffering, we know that it falls under the umbrella of Romans 8, 28. And even whatever that works out, we trust the mysterious providence of God. Why, Lord, why? We may cry in our heart, but we trust him. And whatever his plan for us is, whatever level of pain we must endure, whatever length of lies, long or short, is good and right. And if we are in Christ, we have eternity waiting for us. And we may, have you ever looked inside a clock? You can look inside a clock and they have all the, the wheels and the cores and the cogs and the this and the that. And, and they, they're going in different directions. Sometimes it may look like they're going in opposing and contradictory positions. But when it's working well, the alarm strikes at the perfect time. The chimes sound just when they are supposed to. So also, in the providence of God through your suffering, it may seem to be mo moving in opposing directions. But... The alarm of God rings, the alarm of rescue, the alarm of relief rings at the precise time that it is supposed to be. And, beloved, dear friend, God will have last word in human history and in your life and in my life. Finally, <clears throat> still in the group of the majority oppressing, finally, verse 16 at the end, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. This is God's settled fury. This is his righteous anger. This is his fierce judgment. This wrath of God has overtaken them. It's hanging over them, and it's about to fall upon them. This is the kind of wrath that John Edwards uh, preached in perhaps the most famous sermon on American soil, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he described the wrath of God like great waters dammed up for the present. That's from Romans 2.5. Black clouds of God's wrath hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. So Edwards was preaching to his church, and the believers were there, and we understand the God's wrath, God's wrath does not touch the believer. But we better understand fully that temporal judgment may come as a result of sin. But even when we think of the wrath of God, that purifies us, that strengthens us, that makes us wiser. 
And friend, if you are here this morning not trusting Christ, this is the wrath of God that is hanging and looming over you. And if you don't listen now, I can't promise you there'll be a tomorrow. That's why God says in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, today is a day of salvation. And Jesus said if you would come to him, if you would ask for forgiveness, that he would receive you to himself, adopt you into his family, and make you a new creature in Christ Jesus where old things have passed away and new things have come. Edward said, and again, this is obviously directing to unbelievers, the tares that would be among the wheat. He said this, quote, Sinner, do you know the arrows of God's wrath are trained on you? They are revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is justly offended when you ignore him in your rebellion. And there is no hiding place from his holy anger for you in your disdain. What Edwards was saying there, what Paul is bringing out here in this passage, those who reject the gospel, those who refuse to let it be preached, will know the eternal wrath of God. God is your judge. Where then is your refuge? And by the way, I briefly mentioned Romans 2.5. Jesus is the one who will come and deliver the wrath. It is Jesus' hand that will punish the wicked. And Jesus is also the one who delivers from the wrath. The same hand of Jesus that will punish the wicked is the hand that comforts the righteous, that comforts the repentant, that comforts the adopted son and daughter of the Most High God. Those who hear, accept, and trust the gospel will be rescued. That's why back in the last verse of chapter 1, verse 10, he said, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. May God become your protector. Flee, dear friend, from the mercy of God. Flee to, excuse me, flee to the mercy of God from the wrath of God. And as we get ready to approach the communion table, we can imagine for us a Santan Bible Church. If people from all of Macedonia and Achaia came here, what kind of model would we have? What kind of example? What would they learn? Would they learn how to be a united, expectant, rejoicing, growing congregation? Or would they learn how to be a divisive, critical, sour, and stunted congregation? What would they say? May we be like the righteous man, Isaiah, who said, I am a man of unclean lips. We are a people of unclean lips. We are a people of unclean eyes. We are a people of unclean hands. May God's refining grace and mercy wash that away and cleanse us from that. And we now come to the communion table. Join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've chosen the foolishness of preaching from this foolish man, from this mere man. But Lord God, thank you that when your word is ushered forth through the frailty of the human vessels of the preacher, it's not mere words from a mere man. It's the mighty words from the majestic God of the universe. We praise you and thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that now as we come to the communion table, we remember the great sacrifice you've done and the great victory that you have for us. It's for your glory and your honor, Lord, that we pray. Amen.